Welcome to Skim This. Breaking news, what appears to be an unprecedented leak at the U.S. Supreme Court is sending shockwaves across the country. The political landscape rumbling loudly tonight after the explosive leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe versus Wade. It was the leak heard around the world. The Supreme Court appears ready to overturn half a century of abortion rights, a decision that will change life in America for years to come. We'll ask two legal experts to break down what we learned from the draft document, what will happen once Roe v. Wade is officially overturned, and what other rights and freedoms could be in danger. We've also got an update on the week's other major stories, from the Fed raising interest rates again to what we learned from the first primary races this midterm season. And we've got an update on the rising tensions in Ukraine. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. This was the scene outside of the Supreme Court on Tuesday. We're out here to make our voices heard. I had an abortion when I was 19, and I'm here to tell the Supreme Court this is The skim was there talking to people in the crowd of demonstrators. Some were angry, others were rejoicing. I counter the narrative that abortion is a woman's right. My rights do not exist upon the infringement of others. As someone who has one child already and is experiencing a pregnancy now, I mean, I know how much mental, physical, emotional, financial work goes into having a baby. And I can't believe that someone would be forced to do this. It's very clear that we have a radical right-wing justices prepared to eliminate a constitutional right that women in our country have counted on for 50 years. That should be shocking to all of us, but it's also a, a forewarning of what other constitutional right are they going to focus on next. You just heard from Renee Bracy Sherman from the abortion rights organization We Testify, Lindsay, a mom who's also nine months pregnant, Anna, who was demonstrating with an anti-abortion group, and Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono, who had walked over from the Capitol. Protests have been underway all week, after Politico published a bombshell leak from the Supreme Court on Monday night. The leaked document was a draft majority opinion, written by Justice Samuel Alito, in the Mississippi case Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. At the center of this case is the state's 2018 law, that banned abortions after 15 weeks and offered no exceptions for cases of rape or incest. That law goes against the precedent set by the court in Roe v. Wade, the decision that said states can't ban abortion before a fetus is considered viable, which is around 24 weeks into a pregnancy. But this leaked opinion shows the court is apparently ready to overturn Roe v. Wade and let abortion bans like Mississippi's stand. To learn more, we called up Seema Mohapatra, a visiting professor of law at Southern Methodist University, to break down what exactly the Supreme Court's key arguments are, how legit this draft is, and what a post-Roe America could look like. Let's start with the leak itself. We normally get major Supreme Court decisions in June or July. And until then, what goes down in the Supreme Court chambers is typically under wraps. 
It's extremely unusual. I don't think it has happened before that a whole leaked opinion has occurred. Sometimes the votes have been leaked or we kind of know the outcome. That's even rare, but actually getting the full opinion, footnoted and stamped opinion is very, very unusual. Justice Roberts released a statement and said that it was going to be investigated. There's lots of theories, but at You know, this is just very unusual, and it kind of takes away a little bit from the main story, which is the fact that the court is poised to overrule Roe v. Wade. And by the way, according to Mohapatra, just because this is a draft doesn't mean the ruling itself is likely to change. I don't think there's any question that Roe v. Wade is not going to be overruled. It, It will be overruled. I don't see any justices changing their mind after this release and saying, you know, actually, I'm going to side with the liberal justices. So what did we learn from this draft about why the Supremes believe Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional? Justice Alito's main argument about why Roe v. Wade was an egregious case, use that language, was that when the Constitution was actually enacted, that there wasn't a tradition and history of abortion access. Listeners might be, you know, not surprised about that since At the time of the Constitution being enacted, women did not have many rights at all. People of color did not have any rights at all. And it was only by amendment that these groups got rights. And so it's a little bit ironic to be, you know, looking back and saying women can't have rights because they didn't have rights then. Okay, so that's the main argument from the majority. But what exactly will happen if Roe v. Wade is officially overturned? as we expect it to be this summer. What's going to happen is almost half the states have either trigger laws or laws in place that would restrict abortion. And so there's about 22 states that have laws like Texas, where if Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion immediately becomes illegal. And in many states, it becomes a criminal offense. And so depending on how a state wants to legislate it, it is possible that not only the physician that provides an abortion could be um, put in jail, but even the person that's seeking the abortion or has an abortion. Mohapatra told us states primarily in the South, but some that are further North, not only can ban abortion in their state, but some could also enact even more restrictions. We're going to see lots of legislation that we don't expect. Missouri passed a law saying that it's going to basically make illegal for a woman to leave Missouri to get an abortion in another state. And so really kind of restricting um, interstate commerce. There's going to be a lot of litigation about that, whether that's even legal or not. And I would expect that we would have copycat bills like that. We should point out there are a number of states who are committed to providing abortion access for people in and out of state. Here's Caroline Polisi, a lecturer in law at Columbia University. We're seeing many states on the other end of the coin coming out strongly saying we are going to enact laws that actually provide much more robust protections for women, even going beyond the framework that Roe and Casey upheld at a federal level. And it will be up to each state to decide. States, including Connecticut and California, are looking to expand abortion access. California lawmakers are enshrining a right to abortion in the state's constitution, while lawmakers in Connecticut recently passed legislation that would protect residents from facing penalties under other states' anti-abortion laws. 
But regardless of how individual states act, the impact on women will not be felt equally. Before Roe v. Wade, those seeking an abortion were subjected to dangerous, expensive, and sometimes out-of-state options, often conducting the procedure on themselves or without registered doctors. And in a potential post-Roe America, the danger for people seeking an abortion is real. The people that are going to be the most impacted are poor women, young women, people who do not have the option of traveling, getting on a flight to a state that is uh, friendly for abortion care. We really are looking at forced pregnancy for many people that are not able to afford this. And most people that seek abortion care are already mothers. It is not easy to go out of state to get child care to you know, afford this. And so we're going to see poor women being impacted the worst, and we're going to see women of color being impacted. We know forced pregnancy has different effects for Black women, for example, who are three or four times more likely to die in childbirth than other races. And so this is not something that's going to be felt the same, and that was totally ignored in the opinion. It's important to note that abortion is still a constitutional right today, and every day, until the court rules officially. But when it does, that constitutional right ends. So now, many people are looking to Congress and the White House to see what, if anything, they can do to protect the right to an abortion despite this ruling. The White House is apparently considering a number of executive actions to protect abortion access, including reportedly providing some type of funding for people to travel out of state to receive abortion care. And in Congress, people are calling for Senate Democrats to pass a law that would codify the right to choose into federal law. But that's tricky. In order to pass that law, Democrats would need to get rid of the filibuster, the mechanism that requires they have 60 votes to move on anything, because they wouldn't have 10 Republican votes on their side. And not all Democrats are on board with getting rid of the filibuster to begin with. President Biden himself said this week he wasn't ready to endorse canning the filibuster too. So we'll continue to watch this space. The fact that the Supreme Court looks ready to overturn the right to an abortion has changed our national conversation in just a matter of days. Even though in many ways we were expecting this, it still doesn't take away from how scared people feel right now. Roe has been settled law for almost 50 years, and seeing the court wholly change course and likely take away freedoms that were guaranteed for so long will have an impact for months and years to come from people's health to their finances. And legal analysts are now left wondering what other cases around rights and freedoms the Supreme Court might also consider taking up. Polisi told us that even though Justice Alito tried to say this will only affect abortion, that's probably not true. That's because the court has apparently decided to not just pare back or strip away some abortion protections, but they went all in and rejected the whole premise, saying a right to privacy isn't guaranteed in the Constitution. So other rights and freedoms that are based on the same legal precedent could be vulnerable too. I hate using the term slippery slope because it's, it's used too often, but this is a really perfect example of it. Contraception, for example, that, that would be a sort of the next logical leap now, if we're saying, well, everything's going to go back to the states to decide how they want to enact laws or codify restrictions, 
Well, uh, you know, contraception would be the next logical leap there. And we're, we're talking a lot about medical abortions, plan B, things like that. All of a sudden, these are very real issues at play here that are sort of the next to be determined. And the next sort of talking point is, is same-sex marriage. Stepping back, abortion is one of the biggest political issues in America. And this decision to overturn half a century of abortion rights has a lot of people thinking about the role the Supreme Court plays in our country. We remember being taught in school that the Supreme Court was immune to politics and that the court wasn't a political institution. But our experts told us we can't untangle the court and politics anymore. As legal scholars and students of the law, we are taught from day one that political questions are not supposed to reach the judicial branch. It's just not true. Let's stop pretending that it is. There's a conservative supermajority on the court. Trump got three uh, appointees onto the court during his tenure. And it should not be a surprise that this is what is happening. And now you're seeing people on the left try to advocate for reform of the court. And the leak in and of itself goes to this issue of a super politicalization of the court. So the leak just goes to show the sort of erosion of this idea that the Supreme Court is immunized from these political issues. They, they simply are not. As the fight for reproductive rights continues to unfold, we'll keep you updated every step of the way. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, The Daily Skim, for updates. Go to theskim.com to sign up. Somehow, it's that season again. Voters in 13 states are heading to the polls this month to determine who we'll see on the midterm ballots this November. So why are these elections before the election a big deal? We'll explain in 60 seconds. This week, there were two major primary elections in Ohio and Indiana. Our eyes were glued mostly on Ohio because there's one Senate seat up for grabs and 10 candidates who are dying to sit in it, seven Republicans and three Democrats. In the Republican field, one of the candidates was someone you may have heard of, J.D. Vance, the author of the popular book, Hillbilly Elegy. And Vance got a lot of attention in this primary because despite being a big critic of former President Donald Trump in the past, Trump gave Vance his stamp of approval anyway. Talk about mixed signals. And Vance is just one candidate who's received two thumbs up from Trump, who's given more than 130 endorsements this primary season alone. So pollsters were watching Ohio to see whether Trump's endorsement was a golden ticket to winning the state's Republican primary. And so far, all signs point to yes. Vance defeated his fellow Republicans and will move on to the November election. As for the Democrats, Congressman Tim Ryan was gunning for an upgrade to the Senate and won his primary. But considering Ohio's swung red in the past few years, it's TBD if the odds are in his favor in the general. Zooming out, experts are looking to this primary season to get some hints about how things might go down in the November midterms. 
mainly, what power does Trump's endorsement actually have? And analysts will be looking at Ohio's results, as well as the results from other swing state primaries, for some answers. Like the Pennsylvania primary that's coming up, where the controversial TV doctor, Dr. Oz, is running for Senate with a Trump thumbs up. Or the North Carolina primary Senate race, where Trump-endorsed Republican Ted Budd is trying to beat out his GOP rivals. The jury's still out on whether Trump's endorsement moves the needle in those races. But considering Democrats control Congress with a slim margin, Republicans only need the Trump card to work a few times to take back control in November. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Let's get to two other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... The European Union is considering its sixth and toughest round of sanctions yet against Russia, including a total ban on oil imports. Here's what's going on. Nearly 10 weeks into the war in Ukraine, the European Union has announced new potential sanctions against Russia. And they're pretty intense. The EU has proposed a complete ban on Russian oil products by the end of this year, which is a big step, considering almost a quarter of EU oil imports came from Russia last year. These new sanctions are in the works as Moscow is intensifying attacks in both East and West Ukraine. Also this week, we're learning more about just how devastating this war has been to Ukrainian civilians. Also this week, we're learning more about just how devastating this war has been for Ukrainian civilians. A new report from the Associated Press found that a major attack in the port city of Mariupol last month actually left 600 civilians dead. That's almost double the estimated death toll. Looking ahead, Russia is ramping up its offensive ahead of Monday, which is Russia's Victory Day celebration. And if you're thinking, can Russia even claim a victory in this case? They can't. Russia's war in Ukraine has been destructive, but the Kremlin is far from being able to claim a W. Still, that's not going to stop Russian President Vladimir Putin from pretending. Ukrainian officials say that residents of Mariupol are being forced to clear debris in the city, ahead of celebrations Russia plans to throw next week. So it seems like nothing, not even the threat of new sanctions, can rain on Putin's parade. And that brings us to our next and final headline. A new chapter this morning in Brittany Griner's ongoing Russian ordeal. The U.S. officially concluding she's being wrongfully detained. Here's the context. The U.S. government has officially gone on record saying WNBA star Brittany Griner has been wrongfully detained by the Russian government. Griner, a seven-time WNBA all-star, was detained at an airport in Moscow in February. Russian authorities arrested her on drug charges, accusing her of carrying illegal vape cartridges. And now, after 75 days of detention, the U.S. government is finally saying we're not waiting for Griner's case to play out in the Russian legal system. Instead, we're going to take more aggressive action and try to negotiate the terms for her release. 
The State Department has said that this new declaration doesn't mean that Greiner is officially considered a hostage. But she does have a former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and a current international hostage negotiator working on her case. The WNBA has called the news a positive development in bringing Greiner home. And in the meantime, her uniform number, 42, will be displayed courtside at all 12 WNBA home courts when the season starts on Friday. GDP, the S&P, unemployment, inflation rate. Recently, it feels like we've gotten a lot of economic data, and it's been kind of confusing to put all these numbers into context. So today, we're going to check in on how the economy is doing and how all these different data points we keep getting fit into that puzzle. With some help from Katherine Edwards, an economist at the RAND Corporation and a friend of the show. First things first, when we want to understand the economy, we should look to GDP, or gross domestic product, which is very literally a measure of how big the economy is. And the general consensus is a growing economy is a better economy. GDP has four components that are fixed. Uh, it is the consumption of households, the consumption of governments, the investment of businesses, and then our net exports. By far the largest of these is the consumption of households. So how much you and I and everyone spends on home goods, on services, on getting our hair cut and going to the grocery store, that is about 70% of the U.S. economy. When the economy is doing you know, poorly, that is why we focus so much on what households are spending on because it is the most important component of what our economy is. Last week, we found out that the U.S. GDP shrunk for the first time in two years. And because roughly 70% of GDP is U.S. household consumption, these most recent numbers tell us people are starting to spend a little less money. And this is where inflation enters the conversation. In case you missed it, inflation is at a 40-year high. So now, some people can't afford certain items, or they have to scale back their budgets. And when more people spend less, the economy can shrink even further. We'll also point out it's not just the price of everyday goods, like your groceries or a piece of furniture that's going up. Interest rates are also a price, but they're the price of borrowing, right? So I, I want to buy a house. I know I don't have, you know, however absurd house prices have gotten in your neck of the woods, right? I don't have a half a million dollars, so I have to borrow that. And the interest rate is the price of borrowing what I do not have to purchase something that I would like. So both of these are prices. We tend to think of them working in counterbalance to each other because you only have so much room for spending. The group responsible for raising interest rates is the Federal Reserve. They're the people who set U.S. monetary policy. And raising these rates is one of the only tools the Fed has to curb inflation. The Fed already raised interest rates for the first time in four years back in March. And this week, they raised them again by another 0.5%. That's the highest increase since 2000. Basically, the Fed is playing this game that is not a game to most people, but it's trying to decrease the amount of money that people are spending on goods and services to keep that price growth in check, and then do that through the process of, you know, making it harder to borrow so people's spending kind of comes in line. But here's the thing. Even though the Fed is trying to get inflation under control, this move is risky and has caused some people to start talking about the R word, recession. 
the point of raising the interest rates is to slow price growth. And the way that you do that is by slowing consumer demand. But of course, consumer demand is 70% of our economy. You want to be able to reduce demand enough that it doesn't actually shrink the economy by too much. But of course, you know, the first data point we got on this was the economy had shrunk. But of course, there's still the coronavirus going on. There's a lot of X factors that they have to consider. But, you know, if you raise prices and make it harder for people to buy things and they buy less, it reduces total consumption, which reduces the economy and sends us back into a recession. So as the Fed raises borrowing costs further, that could bring us into a time of significantly decreased economic activity because people can't afford to or don't want to spend, a.k.a. a recession. And that leads us to the third piece of economic data we use to measure the health of the economy, unemployment. During a typical recession, unemployment is high. But right now, unemployment is really low. You've probably heard expressions like, it's an employee's market, and that jobs are just out there for the taking. But Edwards told us there's more than meets the eye here. Just because we technically have low unemployment doesn't mean people are filling all the available jobs out there. This week, the Labor Department found that job openings were the highest ever recorded and that there were also more Americans quitting jobs than ever before. We are, for the first time, struggling to get people to go to work. And that despite the fact that our economy has, by most indicators, quote unquote, recovered, we have fewer jobs now than we did at the start of the pandemic. And we have fewer people working. And some demographic groups have taken a larger hit than others. But the unemployment rate is low. So that would indicate that, one, there are a lot of people who aren't working that maybe would have been otherwise for the pandemic, but they don't seem to be wanting jobs. So there's some kind of permanent exit or at least long-term exit has taken place. So it's in some ways, it's a very good labor market where exactly where peak labor market would be. And so it's easier to think of it in kind of this classical, the unemployment rate is low, everything is great because it's so much harder for us to conceptualize, you know, where did these 2 million people go? And why won't they come back even though wages are increasing and jobs are plentiful? Edwards told us, we're having a hard time getting people back to work in part because we don't have the right incentives in place. The history of encouraging labor force participation in the U.S. can quite cruelly be described as starve them out, right? We don't have a generous unemployment insurance system. You know, we don't have welfare. We don't have housing benefits that go to most people. We do have food stamps. It doesn't pay for things like diapers or rent. We have lots of systems that reward working and change the incentives of working, things like the earned income tax credit. But we don't have something that could be perceived as a labor force participation policy of how do we get more people to want to work. We should be talking about how to get more people into the workplace through things like raising the minimum wage, having better overtime laws. We could have childcare policy, we could have paid leave, we could have paid sick days. There's so many ways that we could make work more attractive as opposed to making not working more unattractive. This would be the time to make investments in our labor market that we are not going to make because we're going to raise interest rates and bring down inflation and possibly cause another recession. And in the meantime, all the problems that existed before the pandemic, they're all still there. Look, we know that talking about a potential recession is nerve-wracking. 
And for a lot of millennials, it could be the first recession we experience as adults, as workers, as parents, or as caretakers. So we asked Edwards for some advice as we think about preparing for the future. There are certain things that the whim of the economy can take away from you and certain things that it can't. So if the economy goes south, you could lose your job. That's a risk all the time, and it's a risk that gets worse in a recession. And that's probably the thing that matters most to people when it comes to recessions is if they will lose their job. However, you don't lose your resume. You don't lose the investments and skills that you've made. You don't lose your education, and you don't lose your experience, your network, the people who can recommend you for jobs. And so while you you can lose your income for a period of time, you don't lose what makes you a valuable worker. And so think about those kind of networks, your your resume, your your skills and what you have built. And that that is going to be your saving grace. I will say from the perspective of a labor economist, I can tell you family is the most important resource most people have. And so don't feel like your independence as a new worker is somehow taken away if you have to ask your family for help. Everybody does it. And it's unfortunate that we don't have a better public support system for unemployed workers, but that private support system is the one that everyone defers to. And so you're not doing something wrong if that's the support system that you end up having to rely on. And so just, you know, know your investments, know your skills, know your experience, keep your network in health. And if something bad happens, you know, get yourself emotionally prepared for it. So if it does knock you flat financially, it doesn't have to knock you flat emotionally. days ago, Airbnb joined the growing list of companies who are saying we're working virtually forever. Remote work definitely has its fans, but the software that comes with it, that's another story. Let's face it, we're already not obsessed with Zoom, but now a new study has come out saying something we've probably all been thinking. Video calls might actually be hindering our ability to be creative. Anybody got any ideas to fix it? Yeah, that's what I thought. So we decided to call in the pros. Meet Melanie Brooks, an assistant professor at Columbia Business School and one of the authors of the study, who had actually been looking into remote work software before the pandemic. What was interesting was before COVID, the assumption was people were gonna all be in person. And the question was, when can we move to remote? But then when COVID hit and everyone went remote and the question was, is there a reason to ever be in person? It completely flipped the question on its head. Brooks was initially skeptical that remote work would actually impact creativity. She thought maybe people were just having a hard time adjusting to new software or new locations. But she started comparing conversations over video conference with conversations in person, and the results surprised her. When we first looked at the data, I I was shocked to see that simply being in the same physical space was affecting uh, idea generation. So in this paper, we're interested in how virtual communication and specifically video conferencing affects innovation. When we're supposed to be creative and we're supposed to be broad, and we're interacting on video and we're limited to this screen, 
it's going to narrow our focus. It's going to decrease the breadth of things that we consider. And that is going to affect the number of creative ideas we generate. But also, I think over time, it's going to limit the kinds of ideas that we generate. We found that the best idea is actually significantly lower in quality when people are interacting on video. Basically, when you're focused on a screen or you're just looking at yourself too much in the tiny camera viewer, it's harder to let your mind explore, which means less original thinking and more awkward pauses in meetings. But there's a twist. When it comes to idea selection, so identifying which ideas are the most creative from your idea set, we find that there's no difference between interacting on video versus interacting in person. In fact, if anything, maybe video is even a little bit better. I was also amazed by how similar Zoom or other video conferencing apps to be to in person. So you hear a lot of people arguing that, of course, Zoom is worse. It's a worse version of interaction. But in so many ways, Zoom does mimic in-person interaction. And I was right to be a little bit skeptical because there is a lot that now we have been able to, uh, to mimic quite well. Brooks also found that on video conference, people felt a similar level of connection with their coworkers and they trusted them with more work tasks as much as they would have in person. So even though video meetings might not always feel like fun, are meetings in general ever actually fun? Still, it's kind of a bummer to hear that video conferencing does affect our creativity. So we asked Brooks if there was a way we could get our creative juices flowing as we work from home. We haven't empirically tested this, but one question that comes from this research is, would we be more creative if we turned our videos off? And um, anecdotally, in my classroom, I teach an innovation class. And when we were working virtually, I told the groups to turn off their videos when they were generating ideas. And they said that it felt really liberating to no longer be tethered to that screen and to be able to just cognitively wander without feeling so focused and looking on their partner. So we haven't tested it yet, but that's one thing that I have adopted and we're hoping to test soon. Besides simply going camera off in some settings, Brooke says we should also start to consider what types of meetings we're having virtually. I don't think the policy implications is that we need to be in person. The question really is, which tasks do we want to be focused on and which tasks do we want to be broad and unfocused for? And so when we're hybrid and sometimes we're in person and sometimes we're not, I think it makes sense to prioritize these more broad, exploratory, divergent processes when we're in person. So the next time your boss schedules a Zoom brainstorming session, because the best ideas come when the cameras aren't rolling. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Sajeen Coriellis. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn, with help from our senior audio engineer, Andrew Calloway. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. <laughs>